are wrapping up our time with the Lord's Prayer. Well, hopefully it's not the last time you'll look at the Lord's Prayer and get the idea. This is meant to kind of encourage you to go back again and again and re-examine it. Sometimes we need to go back to basics in order to realize they're not basics. They're actually uh, much deeper than we thought, deeper than we realized. And I hope you're getting a sense of that as we orient to God through the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is very basic is meant to teach us how to pray. So if we're ever wondering, how do we learn to pray? This is it. That's what the, the disciples said. Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. And Jesus says, here you go. It's really simple. And this is what you should include. And so if you want to just use these words, that's awesome. There's no problem in repeating the Lord's Prayer. It's Scripture. And I don't think there's any problem in repeating Scripture however many times you say it. But also it's meant to give us a framework, isn't it? And so when we're facing really, really good times, how do we pray? This is it. When we're facing really, really hard times, how do we pray? This is also it. Every time, no matter what time we face, we can orient to God by praying the Lord's Prayer. But it does go deeper than that. We've discovered that the Lord's Prayer also reveals the heart of the Father. It reveals God's heart to us. When we wonder, you know, not just what are my priorities in life, but what are God's priorities in the world? We don't have to wonder. God has actually revealed His good and perfect and beautiful will within Scripture, and we find it here again in the Lord's Prayer. God is passionate about His name, about His reputation, about His kingdom, about His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. God is passionate about our daily needs and the fact that we share with others so their daily needs are met. God is passionate about forgiveness, not only that we receive forgiveness, but that we offer it to others. God is passionate about resisting the evil one in whatever form we find him. This is the priority of God. And so we discover that in the Lord's Prayer as well. But we've also found out that the Lord's Prayer reflects the life of Jesus. You could actually do a whole discipleship journey just going through these points of the Lord's Prayer and matching it with stories we find in the New Testament about Jesus. Because every single point of the Lord's Prayer corresponds to a story in the New Testament about Jesus. And that's where we find Matthew chapter 4 that was read to us by Sarah. Matthew 4 is the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And where do we find that in the Lord's Prayer? Right at the end. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? And that's exactly what's happening in Matthew chapter 4. Now, when Jesus first said that, uh, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Jewish disciples would have immediately, I think, thought of the journey of Israel in the wilderness. That was the time when God led them to a time of testing. And during that time of testing, unfortunately, what happened? They failed. <laughs> they fell into the trap that the devil had set for them. They fell into temptation. And so when we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, going into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, what happens? What's different? Jesus succeeds where the nation failed. Do we catch that? So often, if you want to unlock some of the truths of the New Testament and what Jesus is doing, just look back to the corresponding Old Testament passages. So we think of Adam and Eve in the garden, and when Adam failed and gave into temptation, is there a garden in the New Testament? Yeah, there's a garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is faced with temptation and he wins. 
Just like we have a desert in the Old Testament, right? And in the desert, the nation fails. So we have Jesus going into the desert and Jesus succeeds. So where everyone else has failed, Jesus wins. Where each and every one of us has failed, Jesus wins. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's what we find here. Jesus was led into the wilderness and he was victorious. But what was the primary temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness? Think about this for a moment. You don't have to shout it out. We're not that kind of church. But think about it for a moment. What was the primary temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness? I mean, there's three that are listed. But underneath all three of those, there's something happening. What is it? It was the temptation to take a shortcut. That was the temptation. Jesus knew that the Father had a plan for him, and that plan included the cross. Jesus was going to get a name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. But receiving that name meant going through the cross. And the devil comes along and says, don't go through the cross. Take a shortcut. Take a shortcut. There's an easier path to receiving a reputable name. It's actually easy to get all these people to follow you. You don't have to go through the cross. The temptation in the wilderness that Jesus faced was the temptation to take a shortcut. How? The first shortcut was this. The devil said, be relevant. Be useful. You know, you're hungry. Use all that power you have to turn some stones into bread. Make good use of yourself. Be relevant as, as the world sees relevance. Be that. And Jesus does eventually make bread for thousands, right? And what happens during that time? Soon after he makes bread for thousands, they want to crown him as king. And he says, no, not that way and not this time. The devil was right. If Jesus had just simply been relevant to the demands of the people, he might have been able to take an easier path to fame, to having followers. But Jesus resisted the society's desire for him to be relevant. What was the second temptation? The second shortcut. Be spectacular. Not only dinner, but also a show, right? Go up to the tallest part of the temple. Throw yourself off. Just land that superhero landing when you hit the bottom, right? People will flock to you. It's much easier than the cross. You know the angels won't let you be harmed. Take a shortcut, Jesus. Be spectacular and you'll get a crowd. Jesus resists that as well. What's the third shortcut? The devil says, be powerful. Actually, he says, compromise who you are. Bow down just for a moment and acknowledge my greatness, and you'll have it all. Just compromise, and you'll have it all. These are the shortcuts that the devil came to Jesus with. Don't go through the cross. That's craziness. Take one of these shortcuts instead, and you'll have followers the world over. That's the temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Well, it's the same temptation that we face today. In our path of discipleship, if we want to follow Jesus, there are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. Just as Jesus went through the cross, Luke 14 says this, Jesus says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus is not easy. It's difficult. 
I think some people, when they come to Jesus, uh, they feel that all their problems will be solved. It's not true. I mean, ultimately, yes, we will see eternity with God. But right now, sometimes it creates more problems. It creates more difficulty. I remember sitting down with a young couple in Nelson, B.C., and uh, they had been coming to church for some time and really seemed to be tracking along well with us. And then just the, the young guy, he just decided, no, he, he'd had enough. And I sat down with him and he said, you know, the moment I decided not to follow Jesus, I felt much more peaceful about my life <laughs> because it was a struggle. There was a tension. I remember the night when my dad was really struggling with, with his whole life and whether to commit his life to Christ. He had a series of just absolutely awful dreams where he just woke up just terrified and screaming because of the struggle. There's a spiritual struggle that goes on. And finally, my, my dad gave his life to Christ. It didn't solve all of his problems, but it did now because as he passed away, he is now safe with God in heaven. So following Jesus is difficult. There are no shortcuts. One of my favorite books that Eugene Peterson wrote is called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's kind of funny because Peterson got that title from a very unlikely source. He got it from one of the most famous atheists in the world, Frederick Nietzsche. And Frederick Nietzsche actually said this, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. Peterson grabbed that phrase, a long obedience in the same direction, and said, that's discipleship. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a sprint. It's this long run that we're all in, and we need to support and encourage one another as we go through this. So the Lord's Prayer helps us to gauge our progress in this journey. And that's one of the added features that I want to give to you today as we examine the Lord's Prayer, because it helps us to know if we're running in the right direction. It helps us to know if we're running on track. Are we concerned about the name of God? Are we living our lives in such a way that it gives God a good reputation in the world? That's one way to gauge whether we're following in the right direction. Or are we proclaiming the kingdom of God and living kingdom lives? That's another way to gauge if we're running in the right direction. Are we delighting to do God's will? That's another way. Are we asking for our basic needs and sharing our bread with those who are needy? Are we asking God for forgiveness and extending that grace to others? Are we resisting temptation and fighting evil everywhere we see it? Do you see how it works? All those priorities in the Lord's Prayer are also a way that we can gauge whether we are maturing in the faith, whether we're moving in that long obedience in the same direction. The Lord's Prayer gives that to us as well. But what's true of the individual is also true of the community called the church. Just as, as individuals, we struggle sometimes and it's difficult. We have to carry our cross to follow Jesus. So it is true of the church. There are no shortcuts for the church and the mission that God has called us to. Sometimes, and over the last almost 30 years in pastoral ministry, I've had people come up and say, you know, what's your vision for the church? What's your vision here? You need to share your vision for the church. I sometimes think to myself, 
I don't have a vision for the church. I think God does. <laughs> and sometimes I know what we're talking about when we say, what's your vision for the church? We're talking about, you know, what's your preferred future? Where do you see us going in the next number of years? What's, what's a new proposal or a strategy? Or what's another project besides the sanctuary project that we can tackle? I know when we say vision, we sometimes mean all of those things. But we have to be careful as a church that we don't fall into the trap that Jesus was tempted to fall into. That we don't try to simply become relevant according to the world's standards. Or we don't try and become spectacular and just put on a good show. Or we don't try and simply become powerful by compromising our standards and our morals. We have to make sure that we're on track as a church as we pursue this long obedience in the same direction. So what is God's vision for the church and for the world? Well, again, we find it in the Lord's Prayer. It's about His name, His kingdom, His will. It's about daily bread and forgiveness and resisting evil. Again and again, we go back to this. God has already called us to a compelling vision of the future. We don't have to dream one up. We don't have to come up with one. We simply need to get on board and move in the direction that God is calling us to. Listen to what Psalm 8 says about God's name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, your majestic name fills the earth. That's the vision, that God's name would fill the earth. Or Revelation chapter 11, when we're talking about God's kingdom. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That's the vision. The vision is that the kingdoms of this world will all dissolve. They'll slip away eventually. And it'll be the kingdom of our God that will last forever. That's the vision. Or how about God's will? In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, God is patient with us. Good thing, right? God is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the vision. Can we get on board with that vision? That trust in God? How about Isaiah 58 when it comes to talk about bread? Share your bread with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Then your salvation will come like the dawn. That's the vision. Not only to ask for our daily needs, but to make sure the daily needs of others are met. That's the vision. Ephesians chapter 4, when it talks about forgiveness. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in Christ God forgave you. That's the vision. That we might experience unity in the church through forgiveness. Ephesians, or Matthew chapter 16, when we talk about resisting evil, the Bible says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the vision. You get a sense? We don't have to come up with our own vision. God's given us a compelling vision of the future. We just need to get on board and move in that direction. I want to read you from Revelation chapter 21. Probably the most compelling vision that should excite us and move us forward and keep us uh, moving in the direction that God is calling us. Listen to what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. That's the vision. That's the vision that we're part of. That's the vision that we get, get the opportunity as followers of Jesus to proclaim to the world. It's beautiful, and it's good, and it's true. Of course, in the end, Jesus does do something that is actually spectacular and relevant and powerful. What does he do? He rises from the dead, right? But it's not spectacular and powerful and relevant in terms of the world standards. It's spectacular and powerful and relevant on God's terms. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we enjoy. So there's no shortcuts. We shouldn't settle as an individual or as a congregation for the shiny new thing. I think that's always the temptation. What's going to keep us going? What's going to be exciting? No, it's hard work. <laughs> this long obedience in the same direction. We need to give ourselves to the call of God and the vision that God has placed before us. Reach for God's vision, not our own limited vision. This last year, my daughter Triona Um, God is involved in watching Formula One racing. That's my confession for the day. And I won't tell you um, how much I'm paying so that we can enjoy the privilege of that. Uh, somehow she got us interested and we end up paying for the channel. So how did that work? But we've enjoyed it. And Christine was like on the edge of her seat during the Formula One finale race and we we're cheering. And we have to cheer for a certain team. My daughter drives a Honda and I occasionally drink Red Bull. And so it had to be Max Verstappen for the win. If you know F1, you know what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. Max Verstappen eventually won the Formula One championship. But he had a whole team behind him. And one of the part of that team was the pit crew. I don't know if you've ever watched a Formula One car come into the pit. They come into the pit to change their tires mostly, right? And this pit crew for Red Bull Racing has the world record for the fastest pit stop ever. They're able to change four tires. I'm going to just look at this because every time I think about it, it's way too fast. This is true. You can look it up. Four tires in 1.82 seconds. Like where are they when it comes springtime and I want to go down to Cal Tire, it takes like 10 hours to get my tires changed. I'm serious. 1.82 seconds. How is that possible? So the whole team celebrated. They won a big award for the fastest pit crew ever. And this is a standard that's never been set before. And they got the award and it's sitting collecting dust on the shelf because that's not the award they want. What did they actually want? They want the cup, the F1 championship. They're not going for just some, um, some you know, time count. They, they're actually working together so the whole team can win the championship. That's their vision. That's the goal. I think sometimes as a church, we get ourselves focused so much on what's here and now. And it's important. These are important conversations. What's the next program? What's our strategy? Where are we going forward? But we need to not just think that this is where the victory needs to land. Our victory is actually much bigger. The vision is actually much bigger. What we're doing together in these small bits and pieces in the seconds and in the programs and in the things that we do is actually contributing to God's great vision for the world. 
And until we make that connection, all that we do here is going to seem a little bit tedious, a little bit meaningless, perhaps, as we work through these things together. So the Lord's Prayer. It teaches us to pray. That's the fundamental thing it does. It reveals the heart of the Father. It shows God's priority in the world. It reflects the life of Jesus. We can understand the life of Jesus by, by reading the Lord's Prayer. But it also inspires us to pursue the vision of God for our lives and for this world. And in that way, it orients us to God. God's name will be praised. His kingdom will come. His desires will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you'd forgive us for the times that we've fallen into the trap of trying to do all this in our own strength or according to our own priorities or our own vision. Thank you so much that you sent your son. Thank you that you made it abundantly clear what you are doing here and now and into the future. And thank you for making us co-workers together with Christ. We pray that you might fill us with your spirit so that we can bring glory and honor to your name, proclaim your kingdom, and do your will on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.